Hello, and welcome back to the Academic Pediatrics Podcast. We are the Journal of the Academic Pediatric Association, and importantly today for the Association of Pediatric Program Directors. This podcast is intended to help you and inform your clinical education, research, and advocacy practice. We have a great one about a common topic for those of us working in academic pediatrics about developing good surveys. Today, I've got Sabrina Benzion, who is uh, APD over at Akron Children's, and importantly for today, a the chair of the Research Scholarship and Learning Community at the APPD. Um, Dr. Benzion, thanks so much for coming on. Of course. And the immediate past chair of that same group at the APPD, I have uh, Dr. Monique Nafi, who is a program director at OU. Um, Dr. Nafi, thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. So I I rattled off the name of a program, the RSLC at the APPD, and I'm curious, uh, what is that group and why is that important for those of us that are in the academic pediatric community? Yeah, so the APPD, as you said, is the Association of Pediatric Program Directors, and the RSLC is the Research and Scholarship Learning Community. And our goal is to support and promote research and scholarship of our members. And we review surveys um, aimed at residency program leadership, including the residency program directors, associate program directors, coordinators, and chief residents. And you two had a piece in academic pediatrics, which I should probably mention is the reason why we're meeting, about how to make good surveys um, kind of framed around the surveys that go out from your group. We read a lot of articles with surveys. Um, we review articles with surveys. And I think a lot of people say, hey, this is a good thing. We should do a survey about this topic. Um, I think that's something, you know, water cooler talk in your program. You're probably hearing a lot saying, hey, we should do this survey. I'm curious, um, when is survey actually a good tool for our research questions? Well, I will say when I hear the words, let's just come up with a quick survey, I always think, oh, no, it's never quick and it's never easy. Because I think um, while perhaps you can sit down and, and just start typing a Word document full of questions, um, really, I think you have, to, you have to consider how is it best to answer those questions. And so surveys are excellent tools to answer questions about things that are objectively difficult to quantify. So um, for example, how someone feels about a particular treatment or topic. Um, I think one of the examples we give in our paper actually um, talks about a board prep um, curriculum or or I think we talked a lot about ADHD management in the paper as well um, because I was working on a, a curriculum around ADHD management. But I think the idea is that if, if it's something um, that is observable, for example, with the board prep curriculum, if you want to know the effectiveness of your board prep curriculum, you really don't need a survey. You need to look at your ITE scores or your board scores or your board pass rate. If you want to know how learners felt about the curriculum or which parts of it they felt were particularly effective, that is a great reason to do a survey of your learners. Yeah. And so what also I would say, sometimes when we think about trying to figure out people's beliefs and attitudes, um, an interview or a focus group is also something that you can think about doing. But those we think more of as hypothesis generating um, as opposed to hypothesis answering. So those are good for things like exploring an area that's not well studied, um, learning about an issue in more depth, 
It allows you to kind of ask qualifying and clarifying questions to make sure you understand um, what people are thinking. And as we mentioned in the article, if you find in your survey when you've written it that you have a lot of open-ended questions, um, an interview or a focus group may be more appropriate than a survey. They're labor-intensive, but can be really valuable. Putting that together in my head, it sounds like maybe if you're doing these in a stepwise fashion, is it typically a focus group that would happen first and a survey that would follow that? Right. I think if you are trying to figure out more about a topic, it hasn't been well studied. I think a focus group or an interview is a really good first step. And then once you get more information from that and you want to maybe broaden your audience, a survey might be a really good next step. So I think I will just add to that 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 um, often people will do an interview or a series of interviews or a focus group to come up with perhaps all of the A through E choices on their survey. So you want to understand the totality of all of the possible answers, perhaps by interviewing um, people until you reach, um, you know, in qualitative research, they call it thematic saturation. And then you want to survey a larger group of people, right? A survey, a written or electronic survey allows you to reach a larger population. And so perhaps you collect a variety of options and then you survey the larger group to see what resonates with um, the majority of people. Okay, so we have a sense now of when we're going to use a focus group and when a survey or a questionnaire is going to be a better tool for us. Let's take a big step backwards. You guys talk about the importance of the conceptual framework um, and your research question for these. Um, why does that matter Like before we ch even choose or develop a survey? Why do we need to have that? Well, I mean key in any investigation is having a good research question. There are lots of options for sort of vetting your research question, but ultimately the right order of things is to, to develop a research question. And that may be through um, just encounters with, um, with learners or, or specifically we're talking about medical education or um in your reading of, of the literature, perhaps you pick up a new article that that is interesting and sparks an interest. Um, but ultimately, the research question usually comes out in a very uh, rough draft format from from those types of encounters. And then um, and then you really want to do a deep dive into the literature. Um, and then at that point, um, after you've refined your research question a little bit, you want to think about what type of conceptual framework. Uh, up front to help you design your study. So well-designed studies uh, generally happen when you've um, really sort of developed this rough draft research question, done a lit search, chosen a conceptual framework, and then designed all of the interventions of your study. Um, ultimately, once you develop your research question and choose your conceptual framework, um, you're gonna develop some specific aims. And then likely you're going to have to do another literature search at that point. Um, and I just want to remind everyone, there are a couple of frameworks that are frequently used to evaluate the quality of a research question, either iSmart or Finer. And then, um, I don't know about everyone else out there, but for me, conceptual frameworks are a little bit overwhelming. And I always have to take a deep breath before I sit down and sort of look at a list or start to think about how I'm going to choose one. But they are really useful in helping you develop your question 
or refine your question and design your study. So, so typically most educational studies have some sort of an intervention that a survey will accompany. Um, and then often you will also sort of rely a little bit on your conceptual framework when you are interpreting your results. Um, so I, I suspect many like I am are a little bit put off or overwhelmed by the thought of a conceptual framework, but they really are useful and helpful in designing an educational intervention. And there are a few good articles out there on conceptual frameworks, all of them. There are several that are actually referenced in our, um, in our publication. So like, I, I understand that you guys will get a survey instrument that someone's developed to answer a question. They will send it to you and say, please pass this out to the program directors or to the APDs are you looking for a conceptual framework to be coming along with that questionnaire? Like, how does this hit you guys? Typically we like to see information about a conceptual framework. Um, and then also, honestly, we want to see evidence of um, some sort of focus, not, not necessarily focus group in terms of qualitative research, but certainly cognitive interviews. So, so that some experts have gotten together, developed a research question and developed their survey, then vetted it with um, perhaps people who do a similar thing as them, right? If you want to survey program directors, maybe you're going to survey your own APDs or do cognitive inter interviews with your own APDs. And, and, um, and we also want to see that you have done pilot testing. So cognitive interviews are different than pilot testing. When we receive a when we receive a survey, we want to know that the investigators have really thought through from the very beginning to the very end what they're looking at, and we want to know that they have considered all the possible um, outcomes, so to speak. And so we want to make sure that they've gotten a wide range of input from people who do similar things, because I think when you're deep in the literature yourself and you're in the midst of developing a survey, it's easy to be blinded to factors that may affect the work because you're so one-tracked, you're so in it. And I think that's some great tips for like showing that we're measuring what we think we're measuring and that when this goes out to a lot of people, we're not going to get some surprising confusion or people answering questions in a way other than how we intended those questions to be answered. Correct. Right? That's absolutely correct. And it happens really to even seasoned survey writers. Um, it's, it's a horrible feeling when you get responses back and you realize, oh, shoot, these aren't going to be worth anything because people didn't understand what we were asking. Or worse yet, I forgot to ask a key question that I need for my analysis. Yeah, so that's one of the things that we talk about is, you know, not only having those content experts, but having um, biostatisticians that help out in the beginning, you get them involved um, upfront, and they can also look at your survey and how to um, make sure that the questions that you're answering are going to hopefully answer your aims of the study. Are there some general tips we can do like here for people that what makes a good question like or or, or even a bad question any tips in general about did i just ask a double barrel yes question? <laughs> um, <can> I, <laughs> um what yeah like what have you seen what are some examples of of good and bad questions that have hit your desk i will say one thing that commonly happens is people will send um a survey 
for say program directors or associate program directors and then ask that ask us to distribute it and the questions primarily ask about another area of education for example um i'm, I'm just going to give give one in my own recent memory um a survey of program directors that really wants to know how the hospital medicine service the pediatric hospital medicine service uh deals with um, learners from other subspecialties like family medicine residents who rotate. Well, the program director may not know unless they are also the director of the family medicine's rotators, right? So it is really hard um, for the program director. I know people think we're all knowing, but I promise I don't know about every single thing that's happening education-wise in my own institution. I try, even in my own department, I try, but it is sometimes challenging um, because people really want information and the program director is a point person, but it's really important to keep in mind the program director may not know the answers to the questions you're asking. Right. And I would also add, um, we get surveys where they're asking questions about um, a group to make an inference about what somebody else will feel. So, you know, they'll ask the program director and associate program director, how do you think the residents liked your board prep curriculum? Well, then if that's your question, you really want to be asking the residents that, not the, the program director. Um, so we see that too. The other thing we'll see is double-barreled questions. So asking two things in the same question. And I know when I first started writing surveys, this is exactly... Um, my biggest pitfall, I think. And so, for instance, if you say, you know, how do you feel the board prep lectures and the practice tests prepared you for the boards, um, you're asking two separate things. Somebody may feel the the lectures were useless, but the practice tests were helpful. And so then that person can't really answer the question or they can only really answer half the question. So you need to separate them into two different questions if you feel that both are important. And then I'll just follow that by saying um, the other thing, and and actually it's funny to me that I'm the one mentioning this because I do this all the time. Wouldn't it be interesting if we just asked this? And the answer really is no. And that is why it's important to develop those specific aims because remember each added question makes the length of your survey longer and, and longer surveys are less likely to have robust response rates. So it's really important to lay out actually your specific aims at the beginning. And then as you go through your survey and you're creating your questions, make sure to map the questions back to the specific aims, right? So I'm asking this question because it answers this specific aim. And just because something would be super interesting to know, if it actually has nothing to do with your specific aims, you shouldn't include it in your survey. It should absolutely be axed. And I'm just gonna say thank goodness for my co-authors in almost every survey I have written because they have come back to me and said, which specific aim does this answer? And I'm like, well, none, but isn't it interesting? And it's like, no, not for this study. Dr. Navy, this is our one chance to survey this group. Right. Can't we just add Correct. a couple more? Correct. But the, the problem is, yes, that's how I feel about it, right? We're going to do a survey. We might as well ask. And it's like, well, then you have to write a specific aim for it, right? Because random extraneous questions that do not answer a specific aim you will actually likely never um, use. So if it's important enough to know, then you should probably go back and refine your research question and write a new specific aim. Yeah, and then I will also say that um, another 
example of a bad question or vague questions. And this was also something that I did not do well when I first started writing surveys. Um, there's a lot of terminology that people use in their program um, or they have that is not necessarily understandable to a larger group. Um, and that is one of the biggest helpful things about cognitive interviewing is when you lay out the question and you say, oh, you know, how do you feel about coaching programs? Well, well, what does that mean? That could mean is that faculty, is that residents? We may not have a coaching program, so I may not understand that. So um, it's really helpful and it's important to make sure that if you're asking something, um, other people can understand it. And if they, you don't think that they can, or they've told you in your cognitive interviews that they're like, I don't really know what you mean by that, then you have to provide some sort of definition um, in the beginning. Wait, so Dr. Benzion, that's getting to the next question too, which I want to tie back together because we've touched on it in a couple different spots is how do we like demonstrate that we are measuring what we think we are measuring? Like when our survey finds its way to a written article and is trying to get published, what do, what do we do to prove to the reviewers that our survey is actually measuring what we're claiming it's measuring? Yeah. And that is so hard and it's, it's, but it's really important, you know, good data comes from well-designed well surveys is what we always say. But, you know, we kind of view the people who write the surveys are typically the content experts. So they know about what they want to study and they've done the literature review. And then we kind of use, we think the RSLC, we're more the survey content experts. So hopefully we're going to um, give you the... Um, you know, we're going to review your survey in depth and we're going to make sure you kind of haven't fallen into some of the pitfalls about the questions. But we want to know, and I think readers want to know that somebody has tested those questions and you are answering what, or you're asking what you um, want and that the readers understand the question. And so hopefully they've given the most reliable answer to that question, if that makes sense. I think it's important to describe, I mean, just as a tip for for um, surveyors out there, for investigators who use surveys, it's really important to actually not forget what you did in cognitive interviews and pilot testing to the point of, um, like, I usually make notes about how many people I did cognitive interviews with in developing my questions. And then I usually write down exactly what type of um professional I did, like what type of physician or, or program leadership I did my pilot testing with. Often um, we, in our, in our, in my um, experience in our program and in, and in um, surveys that I've done, we often use our chief residents or um, associate program directors as um, proxy for if we're going to survey program directors. Um, the other alternative would be to survey um, perhaps family medicine or or other um, program directors in your institution. And if you're not sure who you should survey, if you're not sure who would know, it would be worth talking to your local experts to see if they have ideas, right? If you really do want to know about um, how residents are taught to do ADHD management in the clinic, and you don't work in the clinic as a surveyor, 
um, or as the investigator, you probably want to collaborate with with some colleagues from your institution or another institution who do that work with residents so that at least you have a framework to start from. And then we've mentioned a couple of times a cognitive interview. What is that? So once your survey questions are developed in a cognitive interview, typically you would sit with whoever you're interviewing and you hand them the survey and they read the question and you say, what do you think this question is asking? And then which answer would you choose? And why? And then I often ask, is there an answer that you wish was there but wasn't, but isn't? Is something missing? And you do that for each question. Right. I do that for each question. I do that with my chief residents or the APDs, mm-hmm. someone very similar, but not exactly the person I'm planning to survey. Right. And I write down who I did and when so that I can defend this in a method section. Exactly. Later. And the, yeah, that's exactly right. And the defense looks like um, we did cognitive interviews with, you know, two APDs and four chief residents. The survey was revised and that group was asked to review it again. And then we pilot tested it with 10 different chief residents or, or um, family medicine program directors or whatever. And in the pilot, I don't need to be sitting over their shoulder. Then I can just review what they what they put into there and see if the results surprise me or make sense. That's exactly right. In fact, it's better if you don't sit over their shoulder. And, and you also want them to record how long it took them to take the survey. Because that's how you come up with that number in your when you in your email begging people to take your survey. The survey will only take 10 minutes to complete. You should make sure that it really only took your pilot testers 10 minutes to complete. That seems fair. Okay, I got, I got there's more things I want to ask you about in this article. I, I was surprised that you guys said descriptive stats is not that impressive to the people reviewing these before they get sent out. What do you guys want to see in an analysis plan if I'm going to try to survey the program directors? Well, just to be clear, de- descriptive stats are often very helpful and appropriate, but typically we're looking for a little more robust analyses. So starting to make comparisons between groups. Um, Are there prediction models or regression models that you can use? Um, And this, again, going back to what we said before about um, wanting to consider your analysis plan prior to designing or at least finalizing your survey um, with a biostatistician, it will just assure that you've asked all the necessary questions to answer your research question. I don't know if you have anything else to add with that, Monique, but feel free. I just think it makes sense to think through from the beginning to the end, because especially when you start thinking about doing comparisons or multivariable modeling, which inevitably most people will at some point want to do, you need to make sure you've asked all of the appropriate questions. And so if we don't see that in your analysis plan up front. We worry as an RSLC that you m- might have missed a question or two, or at least that you haven't thought all the way through until the end. You guys mentioned in the paper that the presentation and publication rate from the surveys you distribute is 60, 60% despite uh, having a mean response rate from 2015 to 2020 of 37%. Um, I'd love to know what we can do to like maximize our response rate for the surveys when we're taking taking the time of the uh, program directors and making the use of the service of your your program to get those out. This is something that we have struggled with as an RLCLC, and I think a lot of people struggle in general with response rates to surveys. We all know that everybody is survey inundated. Um, there's a lot of survey fatigue out there, but 
one of the things we look for when we're reviewing proposals is the topic is relevant and interesting. And I think certainly when you have a topic that people are invested in, in terms of invest, they want to know what the answers are and they feel that it could potentially change something that they're doing in their program, um, those are the most likely to be answered. And something that's clear, concise, you know, not terribly long, and also not something that, and Monique brought this up, something you necessarily have to think about um, to answer. Not that that's not okay, but you you need to be upfront when you advertise a survey. Um, so if somebody has to go find an answer, they have to go dig and look. Sometimes they they will abandon the survey. But the thing that I want to clarify with your quote is we are lucky. I feel like we've had a very good publication and presentation rate, even though the response rates to these surveys are not always that high. And I think it's because these topics are interesting to medical education. And I also think because of the rigor of the surveys that go out, we're really protective about trying to minimize the number of surveys that go out. We only accept two surveys per group per cycle. Um, and we're really trying to pick the the best kind of well done and um, you know most relevant surveys to go out. Generally speaking, um, surveys that that are around a, a hot button issue, a high a high impact issue, and and again, like Sabrina said, are shorter with questions that are easy to answer, are more likely to have higher response rates. If you have to ask a question that is difficult to answer or is going to require somebody to go find data. You probably want to advertise that upfront in your email. Please make sure you have access to XX data prior to starting the survey. The other trick is to put those more difficult to answer or more perhaps uh, potentially offensive or, or off-putting questions at the end so that people will have answered most of the survey. And if you're able to use the partially completed survey, most of the questions have been answered, right? So, so a good trick is to put those questions where they may need to go gather data near the end of the survey. So they're almost done. They're already sort of invested. They've spent, you know, 10 or 12 minutes already answering the survey. And so then perhaps they're more likely to go find that little bit of information. Also, if you've warned them ahead of time, hey, you're going to need to have this data before you answer this survey, you'll have better luck with that. The other thing that we have found is, you know, advertising on listservs, reaching out to kind of colleagues that you know, putting a deadline on there saying, you know, we've had, you know, X percent respond and we'd love to get the response rate up to this and please fill this out and it's going to close blank. Um, sometimes that's a little bit of enough incentive uh, to get somebody to be like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm not going to put it off. I'm going to just do it now. We've been putting all of this in the context of the RSLC. And I think most of what we've talked about is applicable to any survey you're going to be doing in your medical education career. Do you guys mind clarifying who exactly the surveys through RSLC go to? And are there any other places that you think are particularly important um, distribution channels for surveys in, uh, in medical education for our pediatric um, colleagues? Yes. So the RSLC is, um, we focus on residency program leadership. 
So the program directors, the associate program directors, the chief residents, and the program coordinators. LEARN is APBD's umbrella network. Um, and underneath LEARN, there is PRIME, and they focus on surveys to residents. So residents um, pretty much only. And then SPIN is the piece that focuses on fellows. So fellows and fellowship directors. Um, I should also mention actually the RSLC, we started um, surveying vice chairs of education as well. So again, another kind of layer of program leadership. And I don't think that that was mentioned in the article, but everything fellow related is kind of goes through SPIN. Everything kind of resident related goes through prime and then kind of program residency program leadership goes through RSLC. So there's no uh, excuse for surveying someone about someone else's opinion. Correct. Hopefully, I also <laughs> want to add occasionally, I know as a program director, I'm sure Sabrina, occasionally for you as well as an APD, I will get a survey come across from somebody outside of the APPD RSLC. And I generally do not respond to those um, because they haven't been vetted like the, the uh, RSLC surveys. Really, any survey coming through from an APPD Learn um, group has been heavily reviewed and approved by people who know how to do survey-based research. And so just a plug for those submitting outside of APPD uh, Learn, we would recommend you not if you're trying to survey program leadership. Um, we would recommend that you actually go through one of the APPD Learn umbrella groups um, and have your survey um, vetted and and approved that way. And and I guess akin to that for program directors, associate program directors, and program coordinators, you can choose whether or not you want to answer those surveys that don't come through APPD Learn. But I think. Um, I generally tend not to answer them. And I know several other program directors who tend to not answer those either. Well, I really appreciate all of your time today. We've gotten some great um, pearls about survey design and some structural things I didn't understand until just now. Is there anything else either of you want to add to this? No, we just thank you for taking the time to interview us and talk about our article. No, it was so good. I really, it's it's on my desk. I have it for the next time I make the mistake of doing survey. I am looking forward to having a little bit, one more tool in my toolbox here. Hey, thanks for having us.